everybody, sup bitches, whatever you want to say to open a debate match here at Multiplex. Welcome to Fan Zone. Oh my god, it's the first episode, it's the first one of the new Debate League Fan Zone here at Multiplex. We have combined uh, what Nerdgasm was of uh, geek debate and have... Uh, infused some movie war zone regular movie trivia movie stuff into the debate uh i'm very excited uh here for the first episode with me is caleb coho caleb how are you doing uh first of all sup bitches uh and i uh, i'm excited fan zones here baby uh it's good to be here uh i have no idea how this is gonna go. Uh, I have no idea what it's gonna look like to uh, watch people fight about movies that aren't fandom, and I am wildly uh, unqualified to be here. But I'm here anyway, and I'm excited to judge. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, and third on the judges' uh, desk, uh, Doug Castle. Doug, how are you doing? I guess our new slogan is "Sup, bitches." Uh, Sup, bitches. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm excited. This uh, this should be a lot of fun. Uh, we got quite uh, quite uh, the debaters here. Uh, they debated in other leagues, and it's exciting to see what they can do in the new fan zone. Uh, I'm excited what this is going to do. It's gonna it's gonna I think invite a lot of people in that kind of held off from debating because uh, it was strictly fandom. So it's going to be exciting to see. Yeah, no, 100% agree. Um, and that is the gist of it. Um, so like I said, we've combined uh, the the two, hoping to get some more people in here. And oh boy, did we. We've got a, uh, a little tournament here of debut players coming up to uh, get a shot at the title at the uh, current champ. This guy right here. We'll see what happens. So I'm gonna I'm gonna host the first few of these, and then I'll go away after a while and let them do their thing. But for the inaugural one, I thought I'd be here. So uh, yeah, this is really exciting. Today we've got two people who are not new to this uh, to multiplex, but are new to multiplex fan zone debate. And uh, our first person in is Amaru Moses. Amaru, you are here. This is your first time debating in Multiplex, but not your first time debating in the world of the internet. Uh, no. Are you excited for your match today? You're going up against Nicholas Tuig. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm I'm very excited. I have had a lot, a lot, a lot of debates. Um, so I am feeling good because when it comes to trivia, depending on where I'm at, I'm okay. But when it comes to this, this debate shit, I'm coming for heads. This is what I do. So, uh, Nick, whether I win or lose, by the end of today, anybody going up against me is not going to want to go up against me in this debate shit. This is this is this is me right here. So I am excited. All right. Well, I'm excited now. Uh, heads might be a rolling. Okay, let's bring in your opponent, Nick Tuig. Nick, uh, <laughs> are you scared <laughs> now that Amaru? has said what he needs to say. So first I would just like to say that Pirates is the greatest franchise of all time and Neville is the real hero. So do I win? Uh, no. Okay, well, um, you know, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. It's uh, It's been a while since I've uh, debated things. Um, Amaru just came in with, with a promo that scared me a little bit. <laughs> and he's he's been low-key talking trash like since this has been set up. So I'm very... Excited! I'm very nervous. Um, 
but it, it'll be fun. Amaru is one of my favorite people uh, in this community, so I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Okay, well, guys, uh, this is how it is going to work. We've got four questions that you guys picked answers to. Um, we are going to debate those four questions. The first person to three is the winner. If we end up in a tie at the end of those four questions, we will go to a speed round. Uh, you each get a minute to open your argument and then five minutes of free form uh, and then one minute to close your arguments. We are going to get into it right away with the first category, which is a category two-ig draft, uh, Marvel. This is a fandom category. And the question is, most disappointing Marvel or MCU movie? Um, we are going to start off with Mr. Tuig. You have one minute to start, or one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Hello. Uh, 2015. Was a was a rough year in the life of Nicholas Tuig. Um, a, lot, a lot of things going wrong. A lot of a lot of movies that I was looking forward to that that wound up uh, not not really holding up as I thought they would. So my my pick for this answer is by far not only the most disappointing, but it, it's by far the worst Marvel movie, and that is Fant Four Stick. Uh, Fantastic Four Babies, 2015's Fantastic Four by Josh Trank. It goes by so many names because it is uh, so infamous. Now, I think disappointing is an interesting term to use for this question. I think it's important to sort of define what we mean by disappointing. I don't think disappointing just means it was disappointing at its release. I think it has to hold up today as being the most disappointing. And I think uh, throughout my argument, I will show you why Fantastic Four is not only the most disappointing when it came out, but it's also today the most disappointing Marvel slash MCU uh, movie. And uh, Marvel's choice is terrible. Time. Oops, didn't mean to take myself out. Okay, um, Amaru, it is now your turn. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Spider-Man 3 is hands down the most disappointing film of all of Marvel. Not only are you disappointed from going from absolutely the best Marvel or superhero movie to date to the worst, also, the first 20 minutes of Spider-Man 3 had so much potential from the ring that they gave to make, make it an authentic romance with MJ. You had an empathetic villain with Thomas Hayden Church playing Sandman. Up until the first 20 and the fight between Spidey and James Franco's Green Goblin, all the way until he gets hit in his head. From there on out, we just get worse and worse and worse. That forced love quadruple between MJ and Gwen and Harry and him. And then the worst character change ever with emo Peter Parker so bad that in the future, the Spider-Verse had to spoof it. The wasted not one, but two villains, just going from arguably the best superhero movie of all time to now the joke of the entirety of the MCU and Marvel. Time. First disappointment ever. All right. All right, guys, you have five minutes of free form. Starts when one of you starts talking. Okay, I'll go. Um, so, so you talked about crappy characters. Fan Four sticks full of them. Um, fan, Fantastic Four was literally Marvel's first family. Like everyone has been dying for a good Fantastic Four movie, and the reason 
The reason fan forced it, the reason a movie is disappointing is because of what comes before. Now, I know what you're going to say. The Fantastic Four movies before Fan-Forstig weren't that good. That makes it even more disappointing. It's literally like liking a girl or, or a, another person who, who you give a chance and then they dump you and then you go back again and they dump you again. And, and the third time they're like, this is the time. And then they do it again. It's even more disappointing. Unlike the first two Spider-Mans, which are fine, but we need to talk about what comes after too. We still haven't gotten a good Fantastic Four movie. That's why we still watch Fant Forstick and we're still disappointed today. Whereas in hindsight, hindsight's 2020 and we're in 2020. But if you look at Spider-Man 3, it's really not it's it's not too different from Spider-Man 1 and 2, given that we've gotten different Spider-Mans since then. Tom it is, it is cool. extremely different from Spider-Man 1 and 2. It was such a disappointment that not only did they put wait to put out another Spider-Man, they waited a whole five years, they continue to refuse to give up on it. There's three different iterations of Spider-Man afterwards because Spider-Man 3 was so disappointing. You said it. Nobody was checking for Fantastic Four when it came out. The other two were bad, but kind of fun. What we got with Fantastic Four in 2015 was going from quirky, fun, bad movie to a sci-fi coming-of-age drama that was just mm, going from best superhero film of all time to arguably the joke of the entire Marvel MCU is way more disappointing than going from that was bad but fun to that was bad and just there, really. That gap is way too far between Spider-Man's disappointment than you get with Fantastic Four's disappointment. I strongly disagree. I didn't say nobody. I said everybody was looking forward to Fantastic Four because we got Josh Trank just coming off of Chronicle, and we had those trailers. Do you remember those trailers where everything was cut? Like, what more of a disappointing movie could you be where you go in and you're looking for the exciting moments from the trailer, and then they're cut? I'm sorry. Tobey Maguire sucks as Spider-Man. In Spider-Man 1 and 2, you still have uh, the terrible chemistry between Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. You still have all the bad things that are also in Spider-Man 3. But you have to look at where we are today. Everyone is still clamoring for a Fantastic Four movie because it's Marvel's first comic. People who are Marvel fans are looking for a good Fantastic Four movie. Um, since then, we've gotten better Spider-Man. So we can go back and we can watch Spider-Man 3 and we can be like, this was disappointing at the time, but I'm going to go watch Spider-Man Homecoming. I'm going to go watch Into the Spider-Verse because they, I have that now. We don't don't have that for Fantastic Four. You said hindsight was 2020. If you look at all the news that just came out, Trank himself said that the studio came in and screwed everything up. They wanted a Black Storm read. You look back at it and you know, oh, the director knew it was going to be Pat coming in. So it can't be that big of a disappointment if just about everybody's saying, hey, Fantastic Four, we didn't get it before. They're probably not going to get it again. So I will see it, but if it isn't bad, whatever. Spider-Man 3 is so disappointing because it went from best of all time to not good. That's why we choose to go see the other ones instead of this. But on top of that, it's so much worse when there's glimpses, small glimpses of greatness in it, when you see Thomas Hayden Church's uh, Sandman going in there with Raimi's horror sensibilities. Like I said, it wasted two villains. Venom was like, everybody was ready for Venom. And then we saw him, and then we said, studio, screw you, you sons of bitches. And then we saw Ben every time we got to see Sandman on screen. We got to see basically why Sam Raimi did everything in Spider-Man and why the horror was so great, but he was barely in the movie. So not only are you disappointed now, not only were you disappointed then, but you're disappointed throughout the movie. One like, minute. Ugh, crap, come on, come back, no, come And then it just all goes to crap. You don't want to see that movie.
So if the studio messing with my movie hurts my argument, it does the same for yours because you just you just said that. You want to talk about Venom? We've even gotten a better Venom movie since then. It's not the best, but like we still watch that and we see Venom ruined and we're, we go, okay, I'll go watch the Tom Hardy Venom and I'm less disappointed. We still have nothing from Fantastic Four. And it doesn't matter all the things we know now because coming up to it, there was so much hype because everyone who's a fan of Fantastic Four and a fan of Marvel saw these two movies and said, wow, I've been hurt so much. I can't take it anymore. And then we saw the trailers and we saw the director and we saw the cast and we said, okay, this is a new take. I'm excited for this. And it was literally the worst movie of all time. You've got to be careful throwing around greatest movie of all time in Spider-Man 1 and 2. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. They're good in third. The three is by far the worst. But it's, it just it doesn't hold a candle. They're all pretty similar, given that we've gotten better iterations of Spider-Man. Okay. Whew. All right. We are going uh, to go back to Amaru. Amaru, you have one minute to close your argument um, when you start talking. You go watch almost every single other Spider-Man because of how bad Spider-Man 3 is. You don't want to go back to Spider-Man 3 because of how much you remember. Oh, my gosh. At the time, Spider-Man 2 was the greatest comic book um, movie at that time to arguably the joke. It is literally the joke of all of Marvel and MCU. We got the, into the Spider-Verse joke. You get emo Peter Parker making a horrible to uh, uh, Tobey Maguire who's not great. Even worse, which is thought impossible, when you go to Fantastic Four, you talked about new takes. We weren't looking for it before. You're taking risks. Risks mean you go into it and saying, I hope this is good, but you know what? Because I got them bad before, maybe I get them bad again. They don't know what they're doing, and we have not really seen it. We were waiting for the MCU to do something, and everybody's like, if MCU doesn't have it, Marvel probably won't do anything with it. So... I'm okay because I'm not checking for it at the time Dude, from Spider-Man 2. One to time. Okay. Nick, one minute for your closing. You say you go back to other Spider-Mans because of how bad Spider-Man 3 is. Spider-Man 3 is really bad. Don't get me wrong. But you go back to the first two Fantastic Fours because of how bad Fan Four Stick is. That's how bad of a movie it is. You have terrible chemistry between um, the four main actors. You have the worst line at the end when he's like, it's fantastic. It sounds fantastic. What, was she, what should we name our team? And, and again, it's really important that it, not only was it the most disappointing at the time, but it's the most disappointing now because that's the last we've seen of the Fantastic Four. And it's probably the last we'll see for a while, which is even more disappointed to the fans of Marvel. We have Spider-Man 3, it's not good. But if you look back at the other two, given what we have now, they're really not that different. Tobey Maguire's the same. Yes, there's that weird emo moment. But throughout the rest of the movie, he's really not that bad. Thomas Hayden Church is a fine villain, and Venom sucks. But we get a better Venom movie later on that we can watch, and we don't have to watch Spider-Man 3 and be as disappointed. It was disappointing at the time. It's not disappointing anymore because we can go watch Tom Holland be better. But again, we have nothing for Fantastic Four. And yes, every, the hype was absolutely there based on the trailers, the director, the cast. It was high risk, high reward. Everyone's time. Okay, okay. Uh, this was a fight. Um, I will start, I guess. Oof. Okay. Um... So I liked, uh, I, I mean, I hate both of these movies. <laughs> so this, both were excellent choices. Um, I think, I think I'm going to give 
my point to Nick um, because I think his rebuttal about the studio thing was really strong in the middle of the freeform um, where he, you know, made some comments about the studio interference. Amaru said, oh, studio interference, whatever, and then went on to complain about studio, studio interference in his own movie. It kind of took away a hit that Amaru previously had on Nick, and I think Nick rebuttaled that really well. I also think that Nick's point about us not getting something good from Spider-Man, or from Fantastic Four, kind of makes the disappointment of the 2015 one go even longer, uh, whereas Spider-Man has had good stuff since then. So I'm going to give my point to Nick. Coho, uh, let's go to you next. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I give my point to Nick. Uh, I think Nick had a really strong uh, just center of his argument with the point that he kept bringing up of we have so many different Spider-Mans that have done so many elements of three better in other movies like Venom, um, and even Spider-Man's had better movies since then, whereas we've never gotten a good Fantastic Four, which makes the 2015 one hurt more and more was more disappointing because, like he said, when you have a trailer with all footage that's been cut from the movie, that's like really hard to overcome from an argument. So uh, I got to get my point to Nick. Okay, so that means Nick does get the first point. Amar, or I'm sorry, Amaru. Doug, you did not get to cast your vote. How would you have gone? Uh, I would lean the same way with you guys. Uh, I think the, the counter productive uh kind of like uh you went to go block that one with the studio thing he kind of slipped and fell up because it kind of hurt you in the long run uh and i think uh nick hitting you with at least we have other spider-mans to go back and watch is a or continue to watch the new spider-mans we have other options so yes that's it might have been disappointing for the time but it's not disappointing now uh is a big factor uh where as nick said you know we don't have anything good for Fantastic Four. We don't have anything, and we should by now. It's Marvel's first family. Do them justice. Hashtag do them justice. Absolutely. All right. So, we, uh, like I said, Nick is going to get the first point. He goes up 1-0 as we get into the next question, which is a category that Amaru drafted. So he will be going first on this one. And the question is in the category of directors, what is the best non-Batman Christopher Nolan movie? So, Amaro, you get to start on this one. One minute when you start talking. The Prestige is Christopher Nolan's masterpiece for two reasons. First and foremost is because he takes his practical storytelling and unique narratives and perfects it with Cutter at the beginning, giving you the three steps of magic tricks and showing that that is what the movie is in itself. You take the pledge, the ordinary rivalry between two men, and then you get the turn, taking that ordinary rivalry and going through the extraordinary lengths of how they want to do the transported man, but also the lengths they'll go to maim, hurt, and destroy the other's career, but it's the prestige. It's when the other foot finally drops that your mind is blown, mostly because you are given all of the answers throughout the film. Valen and Borden are clearly played by Christian Bale, so you know what his tricks are. And you saw that Tesla's machine made duplicates, so you knew and Gears' uh, tricks were going to involve that. And just like at the beginning, where Cutter says the magic trick at the end, and it shows you what the movie is, he also finishes the movie with his perfect Michael Caine line, you want to be fooled. Time. That's why it's great. All right. 
Nick, you have one minute to open when you start. Christopher Nolan's best movie by far is Inception. Um, the reason Inception is better than all his other movies is it's a complete puzzle and it makes a beautiful picture. Um, I'll explain what I mean by, by puzzles because I think Amaro's Choice is actually missing a few pieces, so it's not a complete puzzle. Um, it has the best performances, it has the most likable characters, and it has the best visuals, and it has the most unique, tight storytelling. And I say unique because we've never seen anything like the concept that Inception introduces, and it's the most interesting. It's a heist movie, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's a good crime movie as well. It's got so many different layers. Um, and I just think it's a lot better than The Prestige, and I'll get more into it in the other round. Okay. Nick giving up about 15 seconds there, but we will bring in Amaru. You guys have five minutes. Remember, give and take back and forth through the five minutes. We start when one of you starts talking. Okay, so the second reason that it's it's that the prestige is so much better than everything else that Nolan has done is not only does it perfect in that his puzzle pieces and his fractured storylines, but he also gives his characters depth, emotion, and stakes that allow you to connect them while you're following along something that most of his other movies, especially Inception, does not do. You care about when Angier's wife dies. You care about Gordon and his daughter. You care about Sarah's suicide. You care about Fallon ultimately taking the fall. You care about those because all of the performances emote so so much emotion and a range of emotion from everybody, not just likability and not just something else that another one of your characters has that shows nobody in Inception really, they really connect to as an overall complete complete person. They're just singular characters that don't give you much past what they give you initially. So I'd love for you to explain uh, the depth you're talking about in Borden and Angier uh, later because I, I don't see it. Um, they're just two straight-faced guys. I don't care when their wife dies at the beginning. I mean, I care because I don't want anyone's wife to die. But, like, I don't care because I don't know who they are as characters yet. Um, the fact is it's good performances, but they're they're very thin-level characters. Like, I, I know nothing about them. You you say there's nothing to, to grasp onto in in um, Inception? Look at Cobb. Look at Cobb. We, we get to know Cobb as a character, and then we get to know why he is the way he is. It's because he's trying to get back to his children after his wife committed suicide, after he lived in this fantastical world created by Christopher Nolan for so long that he didn't know what was real and what was fake. And that's the, that's the brilliance about Inception. It's the brilliance about all Nolan's movies. I think it's the strongest in Inception when the, the low, what's below the surface is what he's trying to tell you. And it's, it's scary to question your own reality. You know, beyond beyond dreams, but it's like, it, it, is this really going on? We're, we're living in a time like that right now, and it's it's it, it's really interesting. What what sucks about the prestige is I'm not nine anymore, <laughs> so I don't need the foreshadowing at the beginning of the prestige. That's like, here's part one of the movie, here's part two of the movie, and guess what? I'm going to tell you what part three is too. I don't need to know. Uh, it, it sets it up too big, and it doesn't live up to it. It lives up. It lives up to it perfectly because of the setup and the ending and those two bookends telling you exactly what you just saw and why you loved it, even though it was given to you. In terms of Inception, so first of all, the closest thing you get to some kind of connection is to Ariadne, and she's not there. She's only there used to take care of Dom's problems. You talked about Dom, and you talked about the connection you get with him. 
He is too split between the job and the only thing you may connect with a little bit is his fight with Maul. But you don't get a complete connection because what Maul is, is not the complete representation of who he knew as a wife. She is an exaggerated version of Maul. He said it himself, you are a shade, all your perfections, all your imperfections, it's too extreme. So all you really do is end up really angry and mad at Maul and all you do is really think about how is Dom going to going to solve this while trying to fight her because you only get to be angry at Maul and then like Eames and then like Arthur. You don't have a range within everybody else. You just get a shade of all of that while everything is focused on the story and the puzzle, which is amazing, but so is prestigious, and then you have the depth after. So Maul is, is a perfect example of what Christopher Nolan's best at. She's a metaphor. She's a metaphor for someone who you think you know, but you don't actually know, which is the whole point of the movie is what is your reality? The whole point of the prestige is there is none. And here's the pieces that are missing. It is very convenient that every person on, on the planet has a lookalike, has someone who looks exactly like them. It's very convenient that for some reason a Tesla coil makes a copy of you. I'm sorry. Inception is a stretch, but it makes sense in the world that's set up. That's why it's more tight and it's more unique. The Prestige breaks its own rules at times, and it makes me confused why I'm watching it. One minute. So, again, it, again, it's based on the fact that it's a magic trick and everything there is you want to be fooled. So it, quote, unquote, doesn't make sense because you don't want it to make sense. You want it to amaze you. That's what magic tricks do. They make you find something ordinary, make it extraordinary, and when you bring it back, you bring back all the answers. It's like, oh, that doesn't seem like it should work, but I don't care because I want to be fooled as a magic trick. That story connects to everything. You asked about the best. Angier with his wife is absolutely amazing for the 10 minutes show they did on there. Christian Bale with his daughter as warden, the dichotomy he had with Fallon when he thought Fallon was dead, where the last scene where he had to watch his brother go take the fall for him and, and all of that, you connect so much with all of that and especially just the performances in general. Um, in general, Bye. Hugh Jackman does so well as Root, you don't realize it's Hugh Jackman. It's the yeah. connection and Time. it's Okay, so Nick, you will now get one minute to close your argument when you start. So Jackman and Baylor are some of the least likable characters Nolan's ever created. Uh, I don't care if they succeed. It's supposed to be this contest, but I want neither of them to win because I don't like either of them. The ending is foreshadowed from the beginning, and it's like, hey, guess what? We're going to have a great ending. And then it's not because you're like, why does this create another person? Why does everyone have a twin in the world? Why do I not care about what's going on? These, the, Their wives are dying, but I don't care. Inception's a lot better because it has a message. And it gets the message across better. And it has the greatest ending. The greatest ending when the top is spinning, which really seals the deal as to whether or not we know if we're in our true reality or not. Are we lying to ourselves? That is what he's trying to get across, is humans' tendency to lie to themselves. That's what Maul represents. Maul, his wife, is gone. But in Inception, in his own mind, that's what Inception is, is he's created this person of who she used to be, who she was, a shadow. That happens in real life. That happens with... Um, things in real life that happens with events. We tell ourselves that there's something that they're not, and they trick them. That's therefore Inception has something to say. Steve yeah. says magic's good, and then you, it takes shortcuts by um, making things that don't make time. sense. All right, Amaru, one minute to close your argument. Inception. 
Inception has one half of the puzzle. Just because you're likable doesn't mean you, you are um, you can connect with that character. You don't need to be likable to connect to the things they go through, the revenge, the passion. And that's the message the Proceeds go through. It's the danger of an obsession over um, a, a job, a revenge, anything going in. Tesla said it himself in the conversation with Angiers of how dangerous that obsession can be. The prestige has both sides. It has the puzzle. It has the fractured narrative. It has everything you expect from Nolan, but then what you don't expect from him, the ability to connect to characters and really empathize with them. You don't need the like to empathize. This is the only real well-rounded characters from front to back in the prestige. You don't get that in Inception. You get the puzzle, you don't get the characters. You get an angry mall, you get a likable Eames, but you don't get any characters that you feel empathy for absolutely everything. Inception is one-sided, one prestige has time. Hoofta, hoofta. Okay. Uh, this was really good one. Um, okay, Caleb, we're going to start with you on this one. Um, of course I got to start on this one. Uh, there were so many points thrown back and forth that I thought were really good, and the closings make it even harder. Um, I think I'm gonna lie very slightly with Amaru. I think Amaru's closing sealed the deal for me at the very end. Um, Nick was doing really well, but Amaru was keeping pace. I think Amaru's points about um about how uh, your characters don't need to be likable for the movie to be good was actually kind of a good counter to Tuig's argument that he kept making for the last minute of the regular rounds. Um, so by the skin of his teeth, I'm going to give it to Amara. Just barely. All right. So, uh, Doug, we will go to you next. Where are you leaning on this one? Uh, I'm actually in the same boat as Caleb. I think uh, it, it was a tight bout the entire bout. Uh, and then it comes down to, you know, a few things. Uh, being able to counter that argument of, you know, your characters aren't likable is a huge thing. Uh, he, he thought it through and he was able to counter it. Uh, and I, there was just a lot going back and forth. And I think it was literally just one thing that's, you know, pushed it over for me. And that was with Omar saying that I kind of pushed it over. All right, so with that, Amaru does get the second point. Uh, my vote doesn't count, but I also would have gone with Amaru um, for the same reasons you guys said, and also in his closing when Amaru uh, brought up the point of, you know, Inception has the puzzle, Prestige has the puzzle, and the good characters, and the da 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 and everything Nick said, but more. That kind of put it over the edge for me. So, uh, with that, we are tied one-to-one. -one. Okay, so we are going to move on to the third question, which is uh, in the category of crime movies. This was drafted by Mr. Two Hig, so he will open the argument, and the question is, what is the best crime film of the 21st century. Uh, Nick, like I said, you are opening it. You get one minute when you start. Let's stop. Hang on. Cannot understand a word you are saying. I don't know if it's just me. Hello? No, I can't hear either. I don't know why. You're you're you. We can hear you. It just sounds really muffled, like your mic, like you're not hit reaching your microphone. 
Hello? There That's you go. better. That's weird because I didn't do anything. So That was really weird. Yeah, it's, uh, I was like, I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> okay, all right. Sorry. So just we'll start your time over. So. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> You're looking at a guy from Massachusetts, but that doesn't matter that I'm from Massachusetts. The best crime movie of the 21st century is by far The Departed. Not only does it have the superior characters, it has the superior storyline, and it's actually focused around the crime. Unlike a movie that has a few good scenes, one good character, and a storyline that ultimately means nothing that we don't care about. Um, I really like The Departed because of its, its unique... Um, relationships between every single character. It's Oscar-worthy performances from every actor in it. Um, and, and I like it because it, it, it twists at the end. It, go, it goes where you don't doesn't think it's going to go. And it's surprising every time you see it um, and every time you rewatch it. It's a very long movie, but it goes by like that. Unlike my opponent's choice, which is a movie and goes by like a very long movie. Um, I will leave the rest of my barbs for the, the main round. All right, Mr. Tuig, once again, leaving about 15 seconds on the table. Amaru, one minute when you start. There are certain films that you consider mood movies. you got to be in the mood to watch it because maybe it's too long or maybe too slow. And No Country for Old Men is by far the best crime movie and best mood movie that you have ever seen from start to finish. Every time you think maybe it's getting a little too weird and OMD and will slow down, nope, it brings you right back from the start. It's carried by arguably the greatest villain ever in Anton Chigurh. And he was so great, he overshadows the man who introduces you to the essence of the film in Llewellyn Moss, where, and what you're gonna get for the next two hours. It's a movie that you're looking at and it can have no dialogue for two minutes and you are fully engrossed from start to finish. The sound, the performances, the tension, every single thing about this movie, you're looking at it and you're like, What's going on? What's going on? Even the end where you get a twist you didn't see coming, you think, ah, it's going to end from here. Nope, it continues to take you on that ride. Time. Time. All right, guys. Best crime movie of the 21st century, The Departed versus No Country for Old Men. Five minutes when you start talking. I'm very glad you used the word overshadows, Maru, because that's what Anton Sugar does, is he overshadows the entirety of the movie. And when we don't see him on screen, it becomes disappointing. When we see Tommy Lee Jones making social commentary on the way society acts, I don't care. Um, the crime is literally, it, it becomes a chase movie. It's literally Tommy Lee Jones chasing Josh Brolin, who's being chased by Javier Bardem. And that's it. And guess what? When Josh Brolin dies, I know this is a thing that's debated on like whether it was an artistic choice. We don't even see him die. That's lame. The whole reason I've been watching the movie, we don't even get to see. It's it's very boring. It's not focused on the crime, whereas The Departed is all about the crime. The characters are living in crime. Uh, the story is unique, and like I said, their relationships. But go ahead. So here's the thing about The Departed. It's all over the place. It's hard to follow, and it's on 10 for two and a half hours. It is so exhausting to try to focus on everything. And you don't remember what you saw in the first 30 minutes. There's plenty of scenes where like, wait a second, what, what just happened? Uh, I need to rewind and go back. What, what is going on here? You talked about You talked about the characters and the performances. Just like the last round, you get nothing but unlikable characters, and you need them to have a range to connect with them. There is nobody likable, nor anybody you can empathize with. You can be not likable and still connect, but if you can't, not, if you don't like them, you don't empathize, you don't care. The closest one is Jack Nicholas and all, uh, uh, Nicholson, Nicholas, I always forget the last name, but all the times 
when he starts doing the hand up racism, you're like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I don't care. It's too much. It's too much information going in at once. What am I looking at? So Leonardo DiCaprio is one of the most likable characters ever. He literally goes through, he lives through prison and he lives a criminal's life because he's a good person. Uh, um, the, the police chief's a good person. Mark Wahlberg's character you love. Uh, Matt Damon, you don't like him, but you just said in the last argument that you don't need likable characters. I happen to have them and some that you don't like. It's not too confusing. If you pay attention, you know what's going on. Uh, a mood movie is something I like to call a bad movie if you're not in the right mood. Uh, I don't think having to be in the right mood makes the movie better. You can watch The Departed whenever, and it goes by. It's it's easy to follow. I, I don't totally know what you're talking about, about things that are hard to follow, because it's easy. One guy's on this side pretending to be a good guy, and one guy's on this side pretending to be a bad guy, and you're following both their stories, and you're seeing where they'll go. And they're all... By the end of the movie, you are so tired. You're like, wait a second, why did he uh, die? And did, was he a cop or was he not a cop? You're just, you're trying, it's too much to focus on. You don't, you hate Mark Wahlberg. Screw him and everything he's about in that movie. You don't like Jack Nicholas. You don't, uh, you don't like uh, Matt Damon. You hate Vera Farmiga. And again, you hate all of them, but you also don't empathize with them. They got what they deserve. I'll give you Leo, but you compare that to uh, Anton Chigurh and Javier, you compare that with Woody Harrelson and his great um, uh, side character in there, and you compare that with Thanos, Josh Brolin, being, yes, overshadowed only because he's the greatest villain with one of the greatest protagonists there was. Just everything that you saw with Josh Brolin is just as enticing, and you talk about there's no crime. There's multiple crimes at the crux. You got the initial shootout, followed by Josh Brolin stealing, which is another crime, followed by what you said, the chase. The chase is there. And yes, when you said you didn't even get to see him die, you automatically assume, oh, well, well, that was lame. What, what goes on next? And then the Coens remind you with the scene with his wife, why they are such great directors. It begins the scene with the cranking of, uh, of her mom's uh, casket down into the grave, you get that sound at the beginning, and then you get Chigurh wondering, wait, is he gonna kill her? Is he gonna not with the coin flip? You don't get to see it. One minute. The next scene, the exact next thing you hear is the bikes cranking. It shows you, oh my gosh, that means they probably killed him. Every little subtle thing that leaves it a mystery and leaves you intrigued is why you don't see him die. It's why you get the mood, and it's so rewatchable, it's ridiculous. I forgot Woody Harrelson was in the movie. You just said Woody Harrelson. I forgot he's in the movie because you forget everyone who's not Javier Bardem. And when he's not on screen, the movie screeches to a halt and you say it brings you back, but it really doesn't. You're kind of like, why am I sitting through this? Why am I watching a six minute scene of Josh Brolin running on a bridge and jumping under the bridge? It's so long and it doesn't need to be. And it's not. You're following the movie for one reason because you think, uh, who's going to catch Josh Brolin? Is it going to be Tommy Lee Jones or is it going to be Anton Shakur? And Neither of them do it. He just dies. It's 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 the worst. There's a lot of um, the the whole rat scene with uh, Jack Nicholson is, is the crux of the movie. Um, they're, they're very good characters. I just saw the ten second left. Uh, I'll finish it in the closing. All right, time. Okay, oofta 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 de do. We've got another fight for you. Okay, we are going to uh, start with Amaru with your one minute closing. So Amaru, you may start when you please.
the reason No Country for Old Men is such a great crime film is because you look at it and you expect to be like, okay, I don't want to watch six minutes of Walking Over Bridge, which is definitely an exaggeration, but you do. You are, you are transfixed by everything. You ask who's going to catch him, and then when you think, man, they screwed it up when they killed Josh Brolin, immediately they don't screw it up. They show you why they're amazing directors. They show you why this is such a brilliant crime film. When you watch The Departed, you are two and a half hours of exhausting and, and being annoyed. And screw you, Mark Wahlberg's character. Screw you, Jack Nicholson's character. Vera, you thought, nope, nope, screw you two. Screw you, Matt Damon. And the only likable character that has some empathy, he dies. And he doesn't even get killed by Matt Damon. He gets killed by James Nesbitt. Uh, uh, Dale's character, who I just saw in Iron Man 3, that's why I remember his name. It's just like, come on, man. Time. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that was funny. Okay, Nick, one minute to close your argument when you start talking. You just said you hated all the characters that you're supposed to hate. That means they did their job. They're unlikable, but like you said in the last argument, unlikable doesn't mean they don't have depth. They have depth, and there's likable characters who also have depth. They're all trying to accomplish different things, and all of their paths are crossing. There's so many interesting moments when you think Leo's about to get caught by the cop who texts him the wrong address, but then he, or not the cop, but the gangster who texts him the wrong address, but then he dies. There's so many better performances. I'd much rather sit on YouTube and Google scenes of Anton Chigurh, then watch the entirety of No Country for Old Men because the characters are forgettable. I forgot Woody Harrelson was in the movie. Tommy Lee Jones is the only one you kind of remember, and Josh Brolin dies out of nowhere. It's not interesting to watch. It's not even about the crime. What's cool about The Departed is the city of Boston becomes its own character. That's how good the character work is in The Departed. It's, it's easy to follow if you sit and watch. I don't know what you're talking about. You can say... You can say screw all these characters, but you're not supposed to like Matt Damon. You're not supposed to like Jack Nicholson. You're supposed to follow their stories, and it's interesting when the twist actually happens, unlike Time. No Man, when you're disappointed. Strike those last two seconds, judges. Um, okay. This was another good uh, zone, part of fan zone question. Um, reminded me of an argument I forgot to say. Damn. <laughs> all right. Doug, we are starting with you on this one. Where are you leaning? Uh, all right. So, Amaro, as hard as you tried, uh, I think Nick's biggest hit against you is uh, Shigurg is the movie. When he's not on the film, it gets to a screeching halt. Uh, and you tried your best to counter that. But uh, I think – and then your argument about, you know, uh, it's hard to watch – Nick, like, hits you back harder with a counter hint. So I got to give my point to Nick for uh, those kind of two uh, big moments. Okay. Um, I will go next. Yeah, I'm also going to give my point to Nick. Um, I think for the same reason that Doug said, I think Nick did a good job of playing offense and defense. I think Amaru played a little uh, too much offense and i think his defense came a little bit too late but every negative that nick had for no country of old men amaru kind of just had one excuse where he was like oh no you're wrong that doesn't happen he didn't really but then he his, his hits on the departed were good but i just don't think that his hits 
um, or his defense was as good as Nick's. So I'm going to give my point to Nick on that one, which means he does get the point. Coho, Cohen's are like your favorite people alive. Where would you have gone? This one? The reason why Nick Tuig has won my vote for Heel of the Year is because he got me to choose a Scorsese movie over a Coen Brothers movie, and I will never forgive him for this. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, so with that, Nick is up two to one as we get to the final question in the prep round. This is a must hit for Amaru in order to move on. If Nick wins this one, he is the winner today. So, guys, the question in the category of Middle Earth the question is, who is the best member of the Fellowship? So, Amaru, you drafted this category. You are going to get to go first. One minute to open your argument. Every single member of the Fellowship is great in some way or another. But there is only one member of the Fellowship that has everything you want to possess, and that is Aragorn. He rescues, he leads, he rallies, he protects, he inspires, he pushes through difficulty, he respects others, his relationships help more, he has diplomacy, he steps up from his past, his own past faults, he's humble. He is the first one after Gandalf, who is already on it, to volunteer everything you want in somebody to lead you and be a part of the fellowship. He has all aspects of that. He has everything that Gandalf has. He has everything that Sam has. He has everything that everybody has except Frodo because Frodo is the absolutely only one who can carry the ring. Nobody does everything as well as Aragorn and Aragorn does everything better than everybody else. Two. Time. Okay. Keeping it nice there. Nick, you now have a minute. Who is the best member of the Fellowship? Every member of the Fellowship is amazing, except Frodo. But the best member by far is the one who you said came before Aragorn. It's Gandalf. Gandalf does everything better than everyone else. Gandalf sacrifices. He protects. Aragorn never would have gotten the will to become the king if Gandalf hadn't willed him onto it. He would have just stayed a ranger forever. Gandalf is the most powerful. He's the most useful in battle. He saves everyone at, at Helm's Deep. Not only when the Fellowship is formed, which, by the way, it's formed by Gandalf and Elrond, but Gandalf is the first. Um, but in every other aspect of the movie, he resists the power of the ring as well at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. He is the one with the strongest character. He, in the Hobbit movies, even says how the great... Why do you choose Hobbits? The greatest thing about Hobbits is, is the simple thing. Sauron underestimates the simple things. He defeats the Balrog. He sacrifices himself for the good of the Fellowship so the Fellowship can succeed. That's why he's the best. He's the one with the most depth, and he's the one with the purest heart. Time. All right. This is going to be a good one, I can tell already. <laughs> Five minutes, Gandalf versus Aragorn. Let's do it. Nick, Gandalf could not have given Aragorn the will to do what he needed to do because Gandalf is not there. He disappears all the time. And every time he disappears, whether his fault or own, who is there to pick up the pieces? It's Aragorn. Let's start with when he gets caught by Saruman. Who's there at the Prancing Pony to get them through? Aragorn, who's there at Weathertop to save them? Aragorn, when uh, Gandalf falls at Khazad-dûm, which 
I do believe that if Aragorn and Legolas together would have done something, they might have been able to defeat him because for, you forget that Aragorn also has some magician's blood or some blood in him when he scares the crap out of Sauron with the Palantir inside of him. But when he falls, who's the one that has the strength to say, nah, fam, we need to get up and we need to go now. When he leaves, able to keep the Battle of Helm going for Gandalf to come back, Aragorn, when he leaves to Minas Tirith, who's at the other end? To like to tell him, light the, 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 the fires are lit. It's Aragorn. Aragorn is always there. And on top of that, they would not have won the Pelennor Fields battle without him being the king and getting the dead men to come. Gandalf's gone. Aragorn is always there. Aragorn's good, but Gandalf's not always gone. What are you talking about? He dies for the good of the fellowship. What greater sac noble sacrifice can you have? That's great that Aragorn's there to take Gandalf's place, but guess what? When you have to take someone's place, that usually means they were the better person. So you can say Aragorn has some magician butt in him. Gandalf's a magician. Not only is he good with a sword like Aragorn, which is all Aragorn can do, by the way, but he's good with a sword and with his magic staff. He's the one who brings Theoden back. He's the one who gets Rohan uh, on the same page, back on track. You're saying Gandalf does nothing because he's never there. When he's not with the Fellowship, he's off doing important things that wind up helping win battles. He's the one who goes and gathers the Rohirrim so that while Aragorn is doing a great job, I will give you that, of like holding Helm's Deep, Gandalf is the reason they win. Without Gandalf, nothing happens. Gandalf is the only one who, he, he progresses as a character. I won't say he's the only one. Aragorn does as, as well. He progresses as a character going from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf the White. And he has moments where he shows that you don't have to be a king to be special. He's the whole reason why, why Frodo, who is a lame character, but he's the whole reason why the Hobbits matter at all in those movies. He's the one who shows that you don't need the body of a fighter. You need the, the soul of a fighter, the soul of someone who just wants to do good. And that's why that's why the fellowship works at all is because Gandalf is a part of it. You're right. You don't have to be a king to be special. And that's exactly why Aragorn is Strider for the majority of the first film. But on top of that, he is a king. He has all that special ability of men, of elves, and a bit of magician blood. If you go look back into the history of it, you talk about sacrifice. The sacrifice to take your small legion against the might of Mordor to clear the fields of Mordor for Frodo, that sacrifice. Aragorn is the key. He's the conversationist. He's the one that talks to Theoden to tell him, let's go out to the horn of Helm Hammerhand. He's the one that does that after. He's the one that does that before saying that Gondor needs to fight. Gandalf is the facilitator. Aragorn is everything because he facilitates, he leads, he inspires. Not only that, it's him. It's his relations that get hauled here, here in to help with Helm's Deep. It's his relationship with Arwen in the movie that gets them to have Frodo get to um, get to Elrond to get saved. Everything you say Gandalf has, Aragorn has in spades, and he has to do it when Gandalf is not around. No, I'm sorry. First of all, Aragorn's relationships with people throughout Middle-earth is probably the least interesting part of the Middle-earth movies. I, I do not care about his relationship with Eowyn or with, or with Arwen. Um, the, the thing that you're saying he leads, just picture Gandalf on a white freaking horse leading the Rohirrim down into Helm's Deep. One minute. Gandalf does the same thing you just said about Aragorn, and he, he doesn't need to be a king. I get that Aragorn later becomes a king, but it's pretty convenient, and it makes you... Not as cool of a character, it's pretty convenient when you just so happen to have King's blood that you can go in and get the entire ghost army at your side. That's a little convenient, unlike Gandalf who charges into battle with nothing but a staff and a sword. He's the one who takes 
Um, he's the one who takes down uh, Grima Wormtongue. He's the one who gets Theoden back on track. He's the one who kills um, Lord Denethor. He he makes things happen. And not only that, but he has a heart. He cares about the, the hobbits. He cares about the fellowship. He cares about the good of Middle-earth. He is the whole reason the, the, the things get set off. He's the one who finds out that the ring is the one true ring. He is the one who starts everything and continues it. You say he's not there, but that's because he sacrificed himself for the good of the fellowship. Aragorn never did that. You think he, at the end, he distracted everyone? Guess what? Gandalf was there too. Gandalf was doing that as well. Time. All right. Nick, you will get one minute to close your argument when you start talking. The argument that Aragorn is better that is because because he does the things that Gandalf does when Gandalf isn't around means Gandalf is the better character because he's also doing those things. When he's not there, he's literally stabbing a sword into the Balrog. He's the one who, Gandalf is the one who kicks everything off. Aragorn is the one who is not as interesting of a character and he does, he physically can't do as much. He can fight, he can use a sword, but that's literally it. Gandalf is the one who makes the differences in the battles. He's the one who makes the differences in the morality of the team. He's the one who gets Frodo to Rivendell. He's the one who finds the ring. He's the one who does all of this. He kicks off the the whole quest. He, does, he kicks off the quest. He's the one who befriends the eagles. He's the one who gets Sam and Frodo off of Mount Doom um, after they've destroyed the ring. He, Gandalf is literally the heart and soul of the team. Aragorn might be the captain, but he's at, when Gandalf's not even there. But Gandalf started the team, and he's the heart and soul of it. He, he just, he's done a lot better. He's done a lot more. He's done a lot more for Middle Earth than Aragorn ever could hope. Time. All right. Maru, your final minute when you start talking. You say his relationships are the least interesting, but they're necessary because it's Arwen who gets into Rivendale. And why does Arwen get there? Because he, she's in love with Aragorn. You said that uh, he killed Grimer. Saruman killed Grimer, uh, Wormtongue. He starts it all, Gandalf does, but it shows he's not as necessary because he is not there. You want to talk about somebody who rescues them at the Prancing Pony, who rallies them when they're down, who protects everybody, who respects all relationships, you have the diplomacy with Theoden. He has the connection where he talks and convinces Aramir when they when they reach him. He steps up as the king after not wanting to be the king because he knows he doesn't have to be a king to be special, like you said, but then becomes the king when he needs to. And you want to talk about leading a white horse? Sure, but there's a day when the strength of men will fall, and it will not be this day. It will not be this day. Aragorn is absolutely everything to the fellowship. Kyle. Oh, God. Okay. Oof. Um, all right. So I, I don't got to go first. Yeah, I have to go first. Um, Wait, I didn't have a vote last time, so that means I go first, doesn't it? I mean, I've just been going in order. You that's, can go first. I'll, I will gladly take the pressure off of you, my friend. You can go uh, first. That's fine. As someone who has seen exactly jack and shit of these characters, uh, I will say I was the judge that I had to listen to the arguments to see who pitched the character to be better. And I'm giving my point to Amaru because I think he pitched the character of Aragorn to me better because 
uh, he kept hammering on the point that when Gandalf is gone, Tug was like, oh, well, that just means he, that makes him the better character. But that point didn't hit with me. If a character's not there to help, then that doesn't really, I don't, I didn't understand the logic on that one. Um, I think Amaru hammered a lot of Tug's points uh, and was able to defend all of his and explain why Aragorn does what Gandalf does better and made him the more necessary character. So I'm giving my point to Amaru. Okay. Um, I think I think these are both the objectively correct questions. They're the answers to the question. Um, and man, this one's tough. This is by this is by far the closest one out of these four. Um, I think in the end. I'm going to give my point to Amaru because I do think that both competitors did a great job of explaining why their characters are great. But I think I got more of a sense of Aragorn as a character. I heard a lot about what both characters do, but Amaru, Amaru also went into Aragorn, um, the specific things of like, um, he's there to protect Frodo. He's there with the relationships with um, Arwen to help get Frodo to Rivendell. Um, he's there. He has that moment with Sar uh, Sauron and the Palantir. Like he brought up um, these moments that were different and more character driven uh, than just like the big action moments. So it, it's by the slightest of margins. I'm going to give my point to Amaru. It was very, very close. Um, and I think his closing really, really helped with that too. So uh, that being said, we are tied two to two. Doug, you didn't get to vote. Where are you leaning? Uh, I actually would have leaned with Amaro, even though both their answers are wrong. It's Samwise Sam that is the best character because he carries fucking Frodo up a mountain and completes the fucking mission that the Fellowship was supposed to do. Anyway, uh, I love Samwise. Samwise forever. Uh, but no, it was a great argument, guys. Either way, uh, it's real close. But I think Amaro kind of pointed out the the necessariness of uh, of Aragon. All right. So uh, we are going to the speed round now. We are tied two to two. That means we are going to the speed round. The way that this is going to work, guys, is we are going to uh, tell you a question. We are going to say the question. You are then going to have to um, answer, obviously. Whoever uh, answers first will be going first. You have 45 seconds to open, uh, 30 seconds to close. That's it. There is no free form. Um, you are open to attack and offense, defense in your opening and closing. However, you do not have to stick with one thing. You can do whatever you want with your time. Um, so we will say the question. You can answer it as soon as you can. You can use the internet if you need to think about it. If you don't have an answer right away and you need to look something up, feel free. Uh, we'll probably cap it off if it gets a little too long. Okay, are we ready? Sure. I guess. All right, the question for the speed round. Who should direct a Worlds of DC Green Lantern movie? Christopher Nolan. All right. Amaru will be going first with Christopher Nolan. 
Taika Okay, and Nick is going second with Taika Waititi. All right. Both directors' choices, you answered correctly. All right, so uh, Amaru, you did speak first. That means you are going to get 45 seconds um, to do your opening. We are all three going to stay on here so I can give you your times uh, faster. Amaru, 45 seconds when you start talking uh, for Christopher Nolan. Again, the question is, who should direct a Green Lantern Worlds of DC movie? Christopher Nolan is prime for the imagination you need to really deliver the world of Green Lantern in any way you want. His ability to do structure with time or space or reality or anything he has shown he can do. He has shown he can do action. He has shown he has made the ability to make connection with characters. He can build a massive world and deliver on any theme. Inception had an amazing theme. Prestige had an amazing theme. Interstellar is undervalued for the, the character development that he's able to bring out while building a massive, complicated world. Green Lantern is one of the most handy, one of the most complicated DC characters ever, and there's no better director to hone that in, character-wise and world-wise, than Christopher Nolan. Time. All right, Nick, 45 seconds when you start. All Taika Waititi does is build worlds. Look at look at his movies. Look at what we do in the shadows. Look at Thor Ragnarok. All he's done is build worlds that make sense, and he's created unique characters. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, quirkiness doesn't really work for Green Lantern. It does for some, and it needs to for some. But he also makes Thor a badass at the end of Thor Ragnarok. He also makes really good characters like Hela, like um, Valkyrie. I, I'm telling you, Taika Waititi is the person for Green Lantern. And guess what? Worlds of DC, not just regular DC, Christopher Nolan and Worlds of DC do not mix, especially in the route they're going now with what we've seen from the past three in Aquaman, Shazam, and Birds of Prey. I, I swear, um, Taika Waititi is the person that will fit better into the Worlds of DC, especially on the route they're going. He's the one who will create characters not only that work within the movie itself, but in, within the greater Worlds of DC. Time. Amaru, 30 seconds when you start talking. The route the DCEU is going is showing everything completely different from the last. That Shazam is much different from Aquaman, and Birth of Prey is much different from Shazam. But more importantly, Taika does build worlds, but he does not build it on the scale of Nolan. And more importantly, he doesn't build it in the variety of ways Nolan can. Nolan has done it with space. He's done it with time. He's done it with war and physicality. Taika does it in his in his small little quirky space, but he does not do it on the scale that Green Lantern needs to be done worldwide and all right nick 30 seconds when you start
He absolutely does it on a bigger scale. For, for the Dark Knight trilogy, all Nolan did was build a city. Taika Waititi built a world in Sakaar. Um, Christopher Nolan is absolutely wrong. They might be different movies, but the tone is clearly shifting. The beginning of World of DC might have been closer to Nolan, but we're clearly veering away from that. Throwing in a Christopher Nolan serious movie, we wouldn't be able to take the characters. Um, they wouldn't have the depth we need in terms of like funny and quirkiness that Taika Waititi can give them. Christopher Nolan does not fit in with World of DC anymore. Taika Waititi would blend smoothly, and he'd add a more unique part to the World of DC. And to watch. Okie dokie. Ah. <laughs> All right. Um, Doug, your vote did Boy, not man. count last time. Let's hear uh, from you first. I got to go with Nick. I think uh, Nick's counterbalanced as Nolan. I, I think Nick's point that Nolan's used to in the DC of past being in that one world kind of aspect. Um, and it's not where the DC's go, DCEU's going. It's not what they're looking for right now. Um, I think the inventiveness that uh, Taika brings to the table that Nick was alluding to uh, is uh, it won me over. Um, uh, yeah, Nick's going to get my point. Uh, I will go next. Um, I think... On paper, I like both of the pitches here. Uh, for me, when it came down to the punches and the defense, uh, I agree with Doug. I'm going to give it to Nick um, because I think his point about Nolan not really fitting into where uh, World of DC is going was a big hit, um, and Amaru never really countered it to me. Um, he might have just said, like, oh, yeah, no, 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 it will. But, like, it, did, it didn't really – it didn't. It, the counter wasn't there for me. Um, I think Nick's point of Taika just being able to um, go smoothly into Worlds of DC uh, was was a big one for me. So uh, with that, Nick gets the point. Coho, you did not get to vote. Where would you have gone? No one said Shane Black, and I'm disappointed. Uh, no, uh, Lethal Weapon in space. That's what that needs to be. Anyway, uh, but this was a great fight. Uh, I would have also gotten Nick. Nick nailed the part of the Worlds of DC segment and brought in that part of the argument where uh, if this has just been regular DC, I think Amara would have been able to walk away with this with the Nolan pick. Um, but because uh, Tuig had the framework of the Worlds of DC part of the question, he was able to really hit home the point that that wouldn't work anymore. And I thought that was a really, really smart and clever argument. So uh, Nick gets the point. Okay. So with that, your winner of the first, the inaugural Fan zone match is Nick Tuig with a score of three to two. Uh, Nick, we will start off with you. You have won the first fan zone match at the beginning of this match. You seemed a little nervous. How are you feeling now? I, I absolutely throughout the match, I was a little nervous. Amaru is is the real deal. Um, I feel very lucky and, and thankful to have to have come away with the win today. Um, he definitely had me on my heels. Uh, at many moments uh, throughout the arguments, and I think anyone who plays Amaru in the future should be just as nervous as I was today. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad I won. I was confident in, in many of my picks, um, and I, I hope I did uh, Cody proud. <laughs> well, he left somewhere in the middle of the match. He was backstage. He's not there anymore. But, um, yes, yeah, so this does mean that you have a win. You, uh, Your next match, uh, you will be playing the winner 
of Andrew Barr and uh, Chris Diaz. So you'll be playing the winner of that match. They are playing uh, next week. Uh, so, or two weeks from now, I'm sorry. Um, how are you feeling about that? Who would you like? Sounds fun. This whole debate it isn't new, but it's a little on the newer side. So I don't know who like is good and who's bad at it um, or who would be a tougher opponent or, or things like that. Um, I know Bar. Bar would be fun to play. Uh, I think it'd be a good time. I, I see sort of a debate league as more of sitting down and having a fun conversation uh, with with people who I like. And, and that's what I just did with Amaro today. And I, I'd love to continue the conversation uh, beyond the show. It uh, would be a good time. But yes, uh, if Barr could win that, uh, I think we could we could have some fun talks. Absolutely. Uh, so um, we will move over to Amaru. Amaru, uh, you fought your hardest. You guys both. I mean, we went to the speed round. It doesn't always happen. So uh, you can definitely say that you went to the end. Um, you fought your hardest. How are you feeling about the match overall today? Feeling all right. I still stand by my statement that this is where I flourish. Uh, and when you said Tuhig was my first opponent, that's why I asked him to throw the match so I can just get the win. Because I knew if, 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 if he was my first opponent, then I was up for an extreme battle. Um, but I do believe I proved that whether, um, cause after losing that first round, I was like, don't tell me I'm about to go three, oh, three after talking all that mess. And then I was like, no, I'm good. I'm here. So I, I still stand by that statement that anybody going up against me is going to have their handful, uh, completely. And they need to be up to his level to be able to do anything close to me. So. Absolutely. This is not going to be the end of you in fan zone. Uh, Obviously, we have other things to do, so we probably won't see you uh, back until next season, but you will have a match very early next season. I'm excited to see you back because you played really, uh, really great today. You scared me, uh, and uh, that's a good thing, I think, when you can scare the current champion of the of the league. That That's a good thing. Uh, so, Amara, we will definitely be seeing you uh, back. Um, let's go over to the judges. Caleb, interesting thing today. Um, each player won the category they drafted, uh, and then they, they just duked it out in the speed round. How did you feel about the match overall? Uh, this was fantastic. Uh, I think both these guys showed uh, that they are going to be lethal. Uh, I I pray for every single individual in this uh, debut bracket. Uh, we thought Nick Tuig was a fandom beast. Uh, he is a... 17 division beast apparently uh because fans add add fans on to the list um this is uh this is gonna be a fun tournament i'm excited to see who who uh nick plays next uh and how he does and i'm excited to see him harder back because uh this is this is a, a brutal matchup for either one of these people to take a uh take a loss right now both of these guys are gonna be champions at some point yeah all right doug uh what did you think about the match overall I was incredible. I mean, uh, it's it's always a great thing when you get to sit down and watch people uh, debate sometimes movies that are their favorite and watch them destroy them. Uh, and it's great because I enjoy. But then I'm like, oh, that stinks. You don't get you get the shit on a movie that you like. Not always fun. But these guys did great. It was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, guys, that is going to do it. For us today, uh, the first match of Fan Zone. Thank you.
for uh, being a part of it, everybody here, and uh, thank you for watching people on the YouTubes or on the uh, Apples or whatever if you're listening on uh, the podcast feed. So thank you so much uh, for checking this out. We will be back in two weeks to find out who Nick will be facing next with Andrew Barr versus Chris Diaz, other matches to look forward to, Brian Michaels versus Jacob E. West, and Ryan O'Regan versus uh, uh, Renee Jr. RJ. So that'll be another good one as well as we make our way through this tournament. So again, for the winner today, Nick, uh, for Amaru, for the judges, Doug and Coho, and myself, Tim, thank you guys so much for watching FanZone. We will see you in two weeks with the next match. Bring in the dancing flamingos. I think I've said that one already. <laughs>